Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week is pronunciation guru, token northerner, and I'm pleased to say philosophy expert, Thea Lenardutzi. Setting me up for failure there. How much of a philosophy expert are you, Thea? <laughs> Not at all. I, I suspect we are. Oh, no, we although, are. We... Although we cover a lot of it in the paper, exactly. so I like to think that I've gleaned us. And we read the paper regularly. We know what, and it's actually, there are, there are interesting, accessible pieces on philosophy to discuss. Yes. We will test out that theory over the next few minutes. Each week, we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show today, we have a philosophy special in the TLS this week. Don't worry, we have a series of really great pieces, including on how the brain makes decisions, how Scandinavian miserableist Soren Kierkegaard lived, how to use Tolstoy to help you feel. Thankfully, our philosophy editor, Tim Crane, is here to help guide us and you through it all. To the Second World War then, and in particular, the women who lived in Paris during it. Paris was, when occupied, a significantly feminised city. But when the war was over, the heroism of the women was eclipsed by a clamour for the sons returning from the battlefield. Lisa Hilton will be remedying that imbalance for us. And staying in the period, we'll also look at the distinctly German history of pharmacology, especially as it related to topping up the indomitable Aryan fighter spirit of Germany in the Second World War. Finally, former poet laureate and friend of the programme, Andrew Motion, will give us his reflections on life in Baltimore and read a new poem published in the paper this week. So... Often in the TLS, we produce an edition that is at least partly themed. After classics a few weeks ago, we now give you our best work in the field of philosophy. The cover piece, and it's illustrated by a gestalt image of something that looks both like a rabbit and like a duck, we'll talk more about that in a bit, is on the subject of how the brain makes decisions and indeed operates more generally. Richard Holton has reviewed Andy Clark's Surfing Uncertainty, which offers this as a theory. The fundamental thing that the brain does is to make predictions and then revise them if they are wrong. We'll be discussing that rather arrestingly simple notion. And other pieces include Carol Emerson on the use of Tolstoy and Wittgenstein as tools to help us think and feel, the bleak but powerful world of Kierkegaard in a bravura profile by Will Rees, and Crispin Sartwell on the existentialist who died at Auschwitz, Benjamin von Dahm. Talking about all of these pieces with us is Tim Crane, philosophy editor of the TLS and Knightsbridge professor of philosophy at Cambridge. Hi, Tim. Hi, Stig. Why is it Knightsbridge, Professor, by the way? 
Well, it's Knightbridge, actually. Night- Knight- ah, so it's not. I had in my mind of you sitting loosely in yeah. Chelsea and, uh, and and coming up with theories. That's not. Shopping that's not the Harrods. case. Yeah. No, it's not the Harrods professor. It's the, <laughs> the, the the man who left the money for the professorship in the late uh, seven, uh, 1600s was um, was called John Knightbridge. Knightbridge, okay. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. And I was wrongly calling you the Knightsbridge Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge all this time. Let's start with the piece on how the brain works. And I know that's an area of a special research interest yeah. for you. I'll just summarise in that piece. So Holton's piece about this Clark's theory says this. The main lines are clear and they are radical. The core mental states are predictions. What does that mean, Tim? And why is that actually radical? I think what, what Clark means is that... Um uh, instead of thinking, so to speak, as, of the, the brain or the mind as taking in information, representing the world, and then processing lots of things to come up with some uh, action on the world, you know, so you look outside at the trees and you, you see the apples in the trees and then you go and pick the apples on, as a result of wanting them or something. He wants to throw away that whole model, that sort of input-output model of, of, of the brain, and he wants to replace it with the idea that what the brain does, first of all, is predict how things are going to be. Um, so instead of thinking that you're taking in an image of the trees outside your window and seeing the apples in the trees, instead, you, you do something like this. You think, there are apples in the trees. And then if you find that there aren't any apples, then you revise that um, that prediction and you go on to make another prediction and you say there aren't any apples in the trees and so on this is a huge simplification but that's ba- the basic idea as illustrated by richard holton's piece is it's it's a bit like analogous to what Karl popper said about science that rather than the scientist going picking up lots of information and then generalizing into a theory the theory itself is just a bold conjecture that you make against the world and when the world starts giving you counter evidence you revise your theory it reminded me a bit of sorry i'll let you say something it reminded me of william james pragmatism isn't that the same thing where you say something a belief either has cash value or not and by cash value you're testing it against something and if it works for you it's true yeah that's 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 an interesting comparison i think it's it's different because he's not clark isn't providing a view about what is true or what's not true whereas james james famously said truth is what works um James is assuming the, that there is some connection between belief and action, but Clark is ma- is making something more a claim that's much more radical, which is that all that's really going on is that we're we're just predicting the future course of our experience. Um, so he didn't have it, he didn't really have any view about what's what's true, what truth and falsehood are, which James has. Mm. So how how do Clark's predictions differ from informed guesses, or or are they? I mean, educated guesses. That's a good question. I think they don't, actually. Okay. In a way, they don't. I, I think, I mean... But that's convincing, isn't it? Because I, I totally can believe we live in a contingent, messy world where both in terms of how we process sense data and how we process thoughts generally, we are making it up as we go along and testing it each time. It feels like we live in a very contingent universe rather than yeah. one which is more definitive. Absolutely. I th- well, I think there is... I mean, what Clark is describing is is something real that we do. The question is whether that can that thing that we do, which is as you, what you call making it up as we go along, anticipating how things are going to be, and then revising our views when we get counter evidence. Clark's saying that that activity it can be extended to the whole of the mind. But to answer your second question, Stig, that's the that's the radical nature of this view. But that, that's also where the problems sort of start to cre- creep in, isn't it? Because he's yeah. he's sort of suggesting that this is a kind of a totalizing theory, and yeah. that there's one way of exactly. And there's a question about 
how seriously he means this and um, and Richard brings that up in his in his review but if we do take him seriously then he has to say things like you know desiring something wanting something being driven to get something is really just a prediction about how things are going to be when you get it is all of life not placing a series of bets everything you do well, in terms of you know crossing the road or deciding what to eat or deciding what to do more broadly is basically placing a series of bets on outcomes and that to me is what he's saying isn't it you make a prediction and if it turns out to be wrong you've got to you've got to change it that is what he's saying that's a good way to describe it actually that that thing was first said by the cambridge philosopher frank ramsey who said um all our life we are betting frank ramsey who the biography of whom was featured in the tls i think last year or the year before was reviewed mm. by david papano so it's in our archive but, but, but why, why is that wrong why, why do you I'm interested in both in your thoughts that what why because i this feels sort of like a sort of semi-neat totalizing theory really because it's so vague because it's 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 just almost it's psychologically convincing to me but not to you tim or to you Thea. no i think there's a real difference just take the case of desiring something i mean i think there's a real difference between desiring something and predicting that you're going to get it it may well be that if you if you desire something then you do predict that things will turn out if a certain way if you get it but merely predicting that something is going to happen doesn't give you any motion and it doesn't give you any motivation to do it maybe i can't con- conceive of desiring something if if, so, if something was completely unattainable maybe i can't conceive of desiring it really yeah yeah i, I can't conceive of desiring i mean i don't want this to become a private therapy session for me <laughs> here guys but, uh, uh, but I, I just wonder whether the if something's unattainable one shouldn't desire it and therefore one doesn't desire it I think people have desired often the unattain- unattainable. I think that's a very familiar and tragic mm. uh, psychological uh, condition. Thea, why, 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 is, why does it bother you, Thea, then? Why it... Well, because, I mean, like, like Tim, I, 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 can't, I can conceive of plenty of things that, that I or anyone could desire, but not, you know, in the knowledge that they wouldn't be able to obtain it. I'm interested in, because it does seem that this, this, this desire is precisely where Clark's theory really sort of seems to come undone. I mean, that's, that's what Holton suggests as well. And that's in part, I mean, Tim, you'll have to help me out here, obviously, but it's because he equates it with belief. He equates mm-hmm. desire with belief, and that's something that mm-hmm. traditionally has been opposed to it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, what are the implications right. of, of, of that? What, what is it? And, and there are some recent studies as well, which kind of help to show why that doesn't work. Yeah, prediction is something a bit like a belief. It's, you know, you're saying things will, things will be like this in the future. Um, I think... Um, the difference between belief and desire, I think, goes back through the history of philosophy. I mean, um, Aristotle said that um, reason, reason itself moves nothing. I think he said, and this, the, the idea that you could, that somehow all your action in the world could be explained just by you thinking that things, that the world is a certain way, without there being this other thing, which is motivation. To me, that's incredible. So, but I think it's it's more the fact of of presuming that there's also just one kind of desire with one kind of effect i mean i really enjoyed the 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 notion of i think it's a theorist not not clark but someone who went before him so to speak who suggested that this cognition is driven by the singular desire to avoid surprise which strikes me as very very victor meldrew but (laughs) it's not a cheery word but see all of the everything you're saying to me is again i i come back it feels very pragmatic in the in the with a capital P here, which is yeah. that you make a prediction about what you want or desire, and as the contingent effects happen, you then restate it or reevaluate it. That feels very human and actually is a way of uh, making this a universal principle because yeah. everything you do is effectively a con- continual reassessment of what works. 
And that seems to me to almost be a, a fitting description of human development generally. Yeah, I think I wanted to agree with everything you said apart from that last sentence. <laughs> yeah. It's a fitting description of human development generally. I think what Holton, I mean, I think Clark's idea is brilliant and his exposition of it is, is really um, brilliant too. But I think, like a lot of philosophy, it involves a huge exaggeration. Yeah. Um, and I think philosophy, that's so, so what I tell my students, I say philosophy begins in exaggeration. You know, we had the early ancient Greek philosophers Thales, the first, the pre-Socratic philosopher, the one of the oldest ones we know, he said, everything is water. I said, no, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> Not everything is water. Some things are water, some things aren't. Everything flows as well, is that's Harry Harry yeah, as well? everything uh, is in everything else. No, it's not. So I think, um, sorry, to be more serious about this, I, I think one of Holton's nice points, again, uh, not, not just the point about desire, but it's the point about perception, when he says it's hard to think of perception in terms of these um, probabilistic predictions, um, because if you have something like the duck rabbit, for example, you mentioned, you can see it as a duck and you can see it as a rabbit. You flip between one and the other. You can't see it as both at the same time. And what you can't see it as is a sort of guess that it might be half and half. Let's talk about Kierkegaard, because yeah. uh, it's a great piece by Will Rees on him. Do you feel that he's someone whose reputation needs rescuing? No, I don't feel that. I think he's. I think he has a very strong and pivotal reputation. I think he's, um, in some ways, you know, he's sometimes described as the first existentialist, and I think that's true. It's quite interesting to have the review juxtaposed with the review by Christopher Bartwell of Fondan. But I, would, I think with Kierkegaard, the difficult thing is to classify him. I mean, I just classified him as the first existentialist, and that's rather kind of um, um, a Whiggish way of look, looking at him, because it's look, describing him in terms of something that was going to come later. His work is not so much hard to read, because it's like some, some of it's rather entertaining and interesting. It's just it's hard to extract as will says in his in his review it's hard to extract general theses like you know we've just done with andy clark or something or arguments for theses so my impression is that kickstarter reputation is, is still high but people don't always know what it his reputation is a reputation for as it were i that's how i remember what you think if, if i'd said to you before reading this piece kirkgaard what would you have what, what are the sort of things that immediately occur to you well yeah ex- existential i came across him when i was uh, doing my a- ma in modernism so he's he's an important figure there in terms of yeah, existential philosophy and individual you know particularities and autonomy i suppose but apart, I mean, apart from that, I, I know him, I guess, as a, a philosopher and also how he was, I think I know him because he was an existentialist, but also, you know, as you said, avant la lettre, but also because he was religious. And I remember sort of struggling to understand how those came together. But also um, as a as someone who wrote really engagingly, he, he has he has a real kind of narrative verve, I suppose. Uh, we should just finish because we're going to have to move on, uh, Tim. But we did say we'd talk briefly about Benjamin Fondan, the Romanian French thinker, poet, and surrealist, uh, who yeah. was among the last to die at Auschwitz. What's what what does the piece tell us about it? What should we know about about him? I'd never heard of Benjamin Fondan before this. Well, I had never done uh, heard of him either, actually. And um, I think one one of the things that out of the review, and it's only it's only a short review, but it's rather rather tantalising. Is um, this this point when he talks about the critique of Enlightenment science and reason? He says where he's trying to, uh, and some things that many many philosophers have, have uh, said that the source of the 20th century's totalitarian massacres was uh, often a, a particular sort of scientific way of thinking about people. And he said that um, Crispin says in his review that uh, the repression 
destruction and war he's witnessed and the genocide that's about to engulf him are the effects of reason in history. So mm. there's a sort of slight scepticism about reason and about the use of science. And of course, whenever you have a conversation about the futility and the ugliness of religion, you will always have people immediately turn to you and say, but look at the Second World War, look at the devil evils of communism. They are not prompted by religion. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. We're going to have to move on, but I mean, it's, there is lots of more actually in the piece. It's a philosophy special. They're very interesting, all in in their own way, and we're very grateful for you for for, for, for talking to us about them now. Thanks, Dick. Thanks, Thea. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Bye. Gosh, that was very breakneck, wasn't it? But <laughs> we, we, well, we, we we did the meaning of life, the, how the brain works, <laughs> and then a bit of uh, and a bit of. Um, and um, why why the first second world war was not about god yes i mean by by the paper read the pieces and they can all breathe they can, <laughs> they can all more. breathe for themselves they can but let's stay within this period of the second world war for the next couple of things actually but lisa hilton has written a, a really lovely review about what sounds like a fascinating book entitled les parisiennes there yes yes the pronunciation yep. do, you want, do you want to say yep, it gold star you say <laughs> Parisian. Uh, it's, it? it's been written by Anne Seba and has the subtitle How the Women of Paris Lived, Loved and Died in the 1940s. Uh, the book is rich uh, in the sounds of the city and the voices of these heroic women. It is also, as Hilton notes, a negotiation with silence, the silence of the dispossessed, the vanished and the unacknowledged. Lisa joins Thea and me now. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Hello. Maybe worth starting. These are the fr- Parisian women in sort of 1940s uh, Paris. Who are they exactly and why do you think their lives have been hitherto unacknowledged? Well, what Anne Seba does so, so very, very effectively is she has not used um, more conventional sources for her book. She hasn't spent years in the Archives Nationales. Instead, she's collated an extraordinarily wide and varied collection of letters, uh, interviews, recordings, postcards. She even writes very amazingly um, descriptions of objects to find the voices of these women who have by and large vanished from, from the official record. Um, it's very notable that when uh, de Gaulle at the end of the war, welcomed returning uh, French prisoners. Um, he referred to them as sons. Women's record in the war um, as, as resistance was, was largely uh, ignored by the French and, and has still been so. I think it's particularly interesting if we compare it with the experience of French Jews um, who were appallingly treated by the Vichy administration. There's been considerable efforts um, throughout the 1950s and 60s to rehabilitate the validity of their experiences. And yet, I think this is one of the first times, certainly in English, that that's been done in the case of women. It's very interesting, actually, because in, I think it was in 2014, um, Germaine Tillion was taken into, you know, symbolically into the Pantheon, wasn't she? And, um, and yes, she, uh, this early, in the book, yes. exactly, an early resistant and um, commander of the Résistance, in fact, in Paris, mm-hmm. an ethnographer and a camp survivor um, as well. And she was, so she was officially acknowledged by... Um, President Hollande um, in 2014, and I went, and she was given the Grand Croix de la Légion d'Honneur and this and that. Is there is there much of an appetite for this kind of retroactive depatriarchalization in in France? I mean, as I said, I think that there's been um, the idea that there was this, this myth that the, the whole of France resisted, a myth which has been largely debunked. That myth wasn't always as powerful as some historians would have us think. Um, there have always been voices which questioned the, the record um, of, of Vichy and questioned the, the role that women played in the resistance. But there's been very little in the way of major acknowledgement. I mean, the, the 2014 um, inauguration at the Pantheon was certainly deserved and, and, and symbolic, but there's been very little recognition en masse of, of the, the sufferings of women. And 
moreover of the contribution they made. I think it's a point that Seba makes very subtly in her book, but it's it's nevertheless a valid one, that effectively the re- resistance began amongst women, was started by women, and certainly in its early stages, in the first years of the war, was largely conducted by women. And I, I still think there's a great deal more acknowledging to be done of this. Have they been wrongly considered, because they remained in the city, these women, the city of Paris, is, is there a sort of slightly to my mind an sort of unfair and eth- an un- unethical suggestion that they must have collaborated to a certain extent the notion of what constitutes collaboration with authorities at that Quite. time I, I think that the whole area is absolutely fraught with tension and could collaboration be uh, as simple as I don't know a, a German soldier who holds the door open for you do you walk through it or not uh, if you don't, what are the consequences? I mean, we have to imagine that these are thousands of women and the minutiae of, of their daily acts almost inevitably must have involved some form of, of at least passive collaboration. Does that really count as collaboration? Is it actually a very interesting question? Um, I mean, the, the Paris occupation was, was in, in many senses an absolutely unique historical event without precedent um, and without comparison. So that makes it very, very difficult to, to decide what was and what wasn't. I think the desire to judge is something that Anne very successfully avoids. Um, she shows us the desperation of women who perhaps wouldn't have considered themselves collaborators but you know once your son or your brother or your husband disappears in the night then obviously you'll do all you can to get him back if your children are starving what you do to feed them it's very unfair it seems that the situation for for men was more cut and dry men were fighting or they were imprisoned in camps they weren't having to deal with the day-to-day reality of existing alongside the enemy and so i think again women's collaboration is, is is much more nuanced and complex than, than that of men on the whole. And presumably the women in some ways become a symbol of, of France's guilty past, psychologically speaking, that the men go after fight or they're put in prisons, but the fact that these women were compelled to remain uh, in a city where they were effectively left to the mercy of, of the enemy, I wonder whether France's reluctance well, to deal quite. with that and is it, almost it, an act of shame on, on the part, national shame. It, it, it's it's very notable that during the Operation Sauvage, um, the, the sort of cathartic and often very violent cleansing of, of the French state, which it isn't enacted after the war, that women um, in particular were, were singled out um, for punishment for collaboration. 20,000 women, known as les tendus, had their heads shaved for sexual collaboration. But of course, the reason they were in that position was because their government, their men, had failed to protect them. They were effectively abandoned to the enemy and then blamed for doing everything they could to survive. It's grotesquely unfair. And it's actually, I didn't, wasn't aware of that. It's kind of victim shaming at a sort of absurd national level. Well, it is, but it's, it's, it's also, I think, I think there's, there's interesting enactment there of, of kind of sexual penance, effectively. Yeah. The French state, the French male had been emasculated by the occupation. I mean, let's, let's go further with this. Um, if we think about the way in which um, Queen Elizabeth um, iconized her person in the 16th century, you know, her hymen became the defense of England. One could argue that, you know, the Germans had successfully penetrated the Maginot line. I mean, it's, it's, it's rather a crass way of putting it. But I, I think that the, the French men felt such a sense of, of shame and such a loss of masculinity that they, they, they took it out on, on, on the victims of, of the occupation who were women in order to restore, in some sense, their, their own sense of, of national virility. Mm, shaving their heads is in as violently eff- effeminating them. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, yes, and I think also that it's interesting that after the war, we see in 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 fifties, forties, um, and fifties fashions, we see sort of an intense femininity, which on the one hand could be seen as as a, a joyful return to elegance and frivolity after the privations of the war, but also there's a sense at least I feel, looking at the history of the time, that women are kind of being put back in their boxes, that they're being made back into women and, and to behave like, you know, dolls with, with big skirts and little waists and, and pretty hair. Is that OK, you've done, you've done your bit, girls, now, now behave like women again. Because I think a lot of women, um, and, and this is something, again, that features in the book, although the war, in many senses, was, was horrific, they also experienced a sense of liberation and purpose which they hadn't known before in uh, pre-war French society, which was, in compared with England, for example, very patriarchal. Well, in in the book, art and fashion play quite an important role for them in their sort of daily uh, acts of resistance, perhaps with a little little R, don't they? Mm. Yes, very much so. I I think the idea of um, keeping up elegance um, comes across very very charmingly in the book. There's a lovely description by um, a Scots lady who was um, escaping from Paris as a refugee, and she uh, she sees a, a Parisian lady in an, an impeccable blouse with beautifully done nails and her hat very neatly pinned on, and she looks down at her own scruffy, dirty clothes and says that she realises she's committed the sin of you know allowing circumstances to be an excuse for lowering her standards, which is something you know. A, a... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. True Parisienne would never do. Uh, another point I, I mentioned in my review is um, a woman using her very meager allowance of, of fat, her ration, not to eat to nourish her body, but to rub into her hands mm. on the grounds that her stomach could take care of itself. But there was you know, no reason to let your hands look ugly. <laughs> and I think in terms of in terms of morale and also in, in terms of defiance, Parisian women evolved a, a very sort of original way um, of, of using things like fashion to, to keep up their spirits and to show that they, they were not conquered. At least it's such a lovely review and it sounds like a, a, a fascinating... Do you think it's an important book? I do think it's an important book. I think it's 
opens up to the more general reader exactly what was going on in Paris. It presents a very precise view of the political situation, but that never overshadows the voices of the characters. Certainly, when I read it, I felt that it, it really alerted me to the fact that there is comparatively little work um, done by historians within the academy on this subject, and that's something that ought to be rectified. I think Anseba's provoking some really interesting questions and that's what makes this a very you know a very scholarly book whilst also being a very readable book well mm. it's, a, it's a great review you've written lisa uh, as well it was a, such a pleasure it was, it was one of the nicest jobs i've done for the tls um, well thank you so much for doing it, and thank you for talking about it now um uh, thank you uh, no trouble at all thank you the sort of shaming of the women who mm. is kind of extraordinary when you think about it because effectively in any normal narrative they would be considered the victims mm. because they've basically been placed in an impossible position where you're you're subjugated literally subjugated to another nation and all that entails made made doubly impossible by the fact that these women um under the patriarchal system in france um weren't allowed to have bank accounts so a lot of the time they were financially cut off as well, so they were doubly vulnerable so what are they or trebly vulnerable. And it just does feel like a mass enactment of, of guilt and shame mm. on the part of a, of a bunch of men yeah. to say, we have failed and therefore we're going to blame the people who are the victims of mm. it. It's interesting too because I read somewhere um, I read somewhere about how um, the act of shaving these heads is biblical, um, but it, it was also something that was very closely associated with right-wing extreme you know fascist um, yeah. policies so uh, the phalangists did it uh, and the nazis as well and so it seems quite strange that then the returning you know ostensibly more left-wing or you know resistance yeah. would, would would do that to their own shocking it's a, fast, a really interesting piece i think and it's a really interesting uh, topic we should move on to another previously underexplored area of the second world war drugs Blitzed is a book by Norman Oler examining the role of drugs in Nazi Germany. Its exuberant title prompts puns about people being bombed, high Hitler, Sieg high, and so on. But its subject matter is serious. Despite the Nazi rhetoric against degenerate drug taking, the use of chemical enhancement was a key part of the government's means of controlling society and its underlings. Uh, Anna Katerina Schaffner, one of my favourite writers for the TLS, has reviewed the book and joins Thea and me now. Hi, Anna. Hello. You start by saying there's a distinctly German aspect to the history of pharmacology generally, isn't there? Yeah, that was um, one of the very surprising facts that Norman Ola described in this book. Um, apparently, um, the history of pharmacology really is, um, is German, and a lot of very important pharmacological discoveries were made by German um, apothecaries and late, later on um, people working for Bayer, for example, uh, discovered aspirin early on in the 20th century um, a lot of uh, there, there was a big trade a big industry in opiates and in cocaine and in fact at some percent at some stage uh, German companies such as Merck, Böhringer and Knoll controlled 80% of the global cocaine market and Ola even writes that opiates became something of a German um, speciality at that time and then in the Weimar Republic, which was, you know, which has a reputation for being a very pleasure-seeking um, time, it, drugs played a very, very important role in everyday life and in, in the pleasure culture, more generally speaking. And then when the Nazis came to power, they sought to end that um, pleasure-seeking culture of the Weimar Republic 
but of course introduced a very toxic regime of their own. And they, um, this, they used various drugs very systematically to enhance the Wehrmacht's uh, abilities to stay awake and to boost the power of soldiers. And um, Ola actually discovered some very, very interesting archival material um, that uh, surprisingly hadn't really been looked at by other Third Reich historians. And he discovered that the Wehrmacht uh, systematically ordered huge quantities of a drug called pervitin. Um, it's a great name, for that, great name for that drug, isn't it? Mm. It contains the word perverse. And so it is, it is very aptly named. Um, and nowadays, pervitin is known as crystal meth, which was, of course, made famous by Walter White in the TV series Breaking Bad. And that was used both to keep people in government awake, but it was also given to housewives and, and to people outside of government as a means of increasing productivity. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Pervitin came on the market in 1938 and um, there was a huge advertising campaign that turned it into a massive drug bestseller and everyone took it. So housewives would consume it in the form of um, Pervitin-laced chocolates. (laughs) Is that why it was called tank chocolate? I read somewhere. Yeah, I think. And and also it was given to tank drivers. so, so, so everyone used it. It was um, a Volksdroge, a drug of the people. But um, what Ola found um, in the archives, which he frequented, was that it was very systemat- systematically administered to the Wehrmacht, to the Luftwaffe, and to submarine drivers in order to keep them awake. Because some uh, military strategists discovered very early on that this drug um, basically was able to buy the Wehrmacht strategic advantages by keeping the troops awake. So, um, and that really proved to be very crucial in the Blitzkrieg phase of the war, where everything was about speed and, um, you know, about getting there just before the enemy got there. Um, and Ola actually, uh, he, he, sh- he shows in a few examples um, how, how the, the administration of Pervitin actually decided very, very important battles um, and how, how it was absolutely crucial in, in securing um, successes in the early stage. Of but the it, war. it wasn't all successes, was it, though, because you could chalk up some, some of the major failures to, to these drugs as well? Yes, um, but he also argued that, um, that especially in the Luftwaffe, quite a lot of high-ranking generals, including Göring, the commander-in-chief, Uh, were drug addicts and they uh, made some pretty catastrophic decisions because they were constantly high, flawed judgments and and extraordinary mismanagement. Let's talk about Hitler a second because that obviously seems to flow into that. Is it profitable, do you you think, to try and examine what literally Hitler was on when he was uh, running Germany? Or do you think in some ways if we start looking for that pharmacological answer, we might lose a moral answer or a, or, or a deeper human answer? Yeah, I think I think you actually put your finger there on, on, on one of the problems with this book. Um, because I, I think Ola is actually quite careful about stating quite explicitly that, um, you know, the use of of pervitin in particular cannot explain the unprecedented cruelty and barbarity of the Nazis. And he he does make these statements quite quite explicitly. And he does also say that the um, use of drugs does not explain in any way Hitler's general psychological makeup, which was in place before he started taking various um, drugs. But what he does say is that um, 
Hitler from 1941 onwards um, was increasingly, increasingly high, increasingly frequently given various drugs by his um, personal f physician, who was called Theodor Morel. Um, he was formerly a specialist in dermatological and sexually transmitted diseases and a ship doctor in the tropics. But he became a very, very influential person in Hitler's life. And he started out by giving him metabolic stimulants, sexual hormones, um, vitamins and um, derivatives of, of bull's testicles, very unsavory stuff. So he started out um, by treating Hitler for intestinal cramps and gas, but then um, moved on to giving him um, much more serious drugs, um, including one called Oikodal, which was um, twice as pain relieving as morphine and also a pharmacological cousin of heroin. And one of um, Ola's more contentious claims is that um, towards the end of the war, um, in Hitler's final days, he was, he was constantly high on Oikodal. Um, and had, in, in fact, become a trembling junkie. Mm, um, it, bring, it brings to mind those final scenes in, um, have you seen the film Downfall? Oh, yeah. um, yes, of, of, you know, excellently, Hitler ex excellently played by Bruno Gantz, sort of twitching yeah. and, and sweating. Yeah. Of course, there, the, 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 drug, the drug abuse is kind of implicit, I think. I think you only see him sort of popping pills every now and again, but... Yeah, and some, some historians have argued that Hitler was suffering from Parkinson's, but it's very, very difficult and, and dubious to, to diagnose hindsight. But Ola actually found um, a very detailed um, archival material. Um, he found the notes of Hitler's personal physician, which, uh, which list in great detail the kind of drugs that um, this physician administered. Um, to Hitler, often intravenously. But he does speculate about um, the amounts of times that Hitler was administered oikodal, which is the um, powerful opiate. And he does argue in his book that an X in Morel's notes signifies oikodal. And this is one of the things that he can't actually prove. And much of his argument about um, Hitler being a trembling junkie towards his final days actually hinges on that X. And this is one of the problems of the book in that um, this is speculative. It's an extraordinary story, Anna, and I think you tell it beautifully uh, in the piece. It's a, 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 What an interesting approach to looking at this, because I, I don't believe this has really been done at this to this extent before, has it? Yeah, I think actually what, what Ola does is he, he founds a new genre. Um, he, he basically writes um, a book that, that is sort of vacillating between medical military history and popular Hitler psychopathology. And he was only able to do this and only able to to talk about how the use of narcotics may have determined the course of history because he actually managed to um, to find all these very, very detailed notes in the archives. Um, and I think the Nazis in particular were very famous for a very, very pedantic and very meticulous record-keeping culture, which is what enabled him to write this book. Um, but I would say that one of the problems I had with the, with the book, which is undoubtedly a very important one, was that he does speculate a little bit too much. And he is a novelist by mm -hmm. training. And sometimes this uh, novelistic novelistic stance takes over and he, he, he puts in too many speculative, sensual and atmospheric details and he also uses far too many metaphors at times. Poetic license. <laughs> yeah, just occasionally it, it hinges on the slightly tasteless. And in places um, one feels that 
that the whole story is too sexed up, which is unnecessary because it's a great story anyway. But he does exaggerate and, and um, use too many ornamental flourishes at times. Well, Anna, thank you so much for, for doing the piece for us and thank you for joining us uh, today. It's an it's a absolutely fascinating story. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. There is a book to be written. I think Anna implies, says this at one point in her piece, the How Narcotics Have Changed History mm. would be a, you can imagine a sort of 700-page brilliant piece of popular history of how the the sale and the taking of drugs have, mm. have altered human history you know thinking about south america you think about this fascinating thing of the nazis were all wired and mm. therefore they did what they did i think that'd be a great that'd be a great book there's um there's that very interesting documentary um the house i live in have you seen that no um that's by um i think it's eugene jarecki and that's basically how American foreign policy has been shaped by by drugs, by drug policy and how, how a different drug is used to target a different group of, 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 of citizens, be it uh, Mexicans or or um, or the black community yeah. or, or, you know, white trash or whatever. And that's always the agenda is sort of set by the drug of choice at yeah. the time. Imagine doing that sort of ver- all the way through human history. Gosh, would be, yeah, it would be quite an undertaking. I'm sure someone's beavering away at someone that. Someone is doing Well, I hope so. <laughs> I look forward you, to receiving should you, it in should the you or I try it? I don't, no, I don't, we haven't got the time. Not got uh, the experience. No, neither. The, that's certainly true of me. I'm <laughs> glad to hear it's true of you as well, uh, Thea. That's almost all we have time for this week. Before we talk to Andrew Motion and listen to his poem, I should thank our guests Tim Crane, Lisa Hilton, and Anna. Katerina Schaffner and uh, Theo, I thought some great French pronunciation from you throughout this program. And from you, I think, yeah, very, very good. (laughs) Everyone everyone can hear it, everyone can hear the comparison. Uh, I should also remind you to please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus... Neil Badmington on modern myths, including Nando's and Kim Kardashian's Bottom, an extract of Edmund Gordon's new biography of Angela Carter, Iris Braverman on whether or not we should have pets, Matthew Bowman on the history of debtor prisons, and an archive piece in which Virginia Woolf reviewed Tolstoy in 1917 for the TLS. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, this week we've had our response to the outing of Elena Ferrante. We would not have done it. Where do you stand briefly on Elena Ferrante being named by Gatti, an investigative journalist? I think it's it's a hideous mis, uh, misdirection of um, investigative journalism, which is very much needed in Italy to address serious corruption. Not this. <laughs> no, and also if you just looked at if you just looked at, at books and then textual analysis, you kind of be more forgiving on it. But the fact he sort of rootled around, mm, I uh, think it's all very ugly. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Michael Hoffman has also written on the perils of translation, and Hilary Mantel has given an interview to us saying how much she hates Dickens, among other. things things you can sign up for... <laughs> i haven't read that oh yet. no that she hates brilliant. yeah she hates dickens and she also Excellent. hates uh mr knightley in jane austen <laughs> so do read that Thea. you should also read it you can sign up for our weekly <laughs> newsletter there make sure you follow us on twitter like us on facebook blah 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 you can find out anything you like about the tls just come to our website uh, can i can i make a very quick point about the virginia wolf piece from the archive yes one of my colleagues spotted a confused um, antecedent in it and we didn't correct it. I don't think we did, so I, I challenge I challenge people to try and find a that. confused antecedent? <laughs> yes. So we're trying to, not to correct Virginia Woolf. We have not, we have not <laughs> we have edited not Virginia, Virginia. Well, that was Virginia very, Woolf. That was very noble of us. Uh, before we go, we are delighted to be joined by Andrew Motion. The poet has left his native Britain to go and live in Baltimore. 
Shortly he'll read to us one of the poems he has written there, but we should talk to him first. Andrew, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Nice to hear you. I'm sorry we've had this difficulty getting in touch with you. Do yourself. not worry, Andrew. This is the second time you've been uh, on the podcast. We're very grateful. Uh, I was saying to Thea we should start a, a regular a regular uh, item called Motion <laughs> from Across the Ocean. That would be very good. In which you can give your perspective uh, from over there. But you've written a lovely piece for us in the paper about your move to the States. And thank you. You talk about feeling stymied in the United Kingdom. Uh, partly, I, I presume, you can tell me if that's right, because of your your role as, as Poet Laureate. Is that, is, that, is that what you're talking about, the sort of the, the pressure yes, and the restrictions? Yes, it is really, I, I think. I mean, I, I, I don't want to kind of badmouth the position, and I certainly don't want to make it sound as though I was entirely miserable the whole time that I was doing it, but there, there obviously are difficulties um, doing a job like that. The high-profileness of it is not always very sympathetic to the actual writing of poems, for one thing. If you're somebody who doesn't like having their life dragged into the bright lights, which I don't, then that side of it is pretty tiresome to deal with as well. Uh, and I think there is another another more sort of purely poetic thing to say about this, perhaps, which to kind of raise the tone of this bit of the conversation slightly, which is that it's always the expectation with commissioned work, and of course there is quite a lot of commissioned work comes your way with in a position like that it's always the, the expectation with commission work that you're kind of going through the front door of the subject and i don't think that's a very good way of writing poems I mean, i'm rather inclined to share the emily dickinson position about this that, that the best way is to tell the truth but to tell it slant yeah and, and that tension will always there be with there within in the yeah, role absolutely uh, absolutely explain to us that one of the piece, things your piece touches on the, the paradox of baltimore where you live now on the one hand um, yeah. It's Charm City. On the other hand, it's the land of the wire and what seems, sure. at least from over here, to be this rise, a, a rise in racial tension between uh, black yes. people and really the white authorities. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I don't think it's unique to Baltimore. Um, we see that tension in a very large number of, if not all, cities of any size. But it's Baltimore is one of the, the most sort of uh, agitating examples of that, I think. It's a it's a city which has a very large black population, a predominantly black population. Um, and the great majority of that population feels pretty seriously disenfranchised, I think. As I say in the piece, the the riots, or the uprising, as it's very often called here, took place just before my wife and I arrived, in fact. But the legacy of that it reverberates very loudly through pretty much every day of life here. And as I've also tried to suggest in the, in the piece, even though there haven't been riots on anything like the scale that there were just before we got here. You feel that tension absolutely everywhere. You feel it filling up the car with gas. You feel it at the checkout. There is a there is an absolutely unignorable them and us feel about it, which is very disturbing and very unfortunate. You, you give a very clear image of of Baltimore as this this city poised between between so many things, poised between south mm. and north in a way, you know, as the most northern right. southerly yeah, city, exactly. um, and between right. the old and crumbling buildings and the kind of the yeah. new modern developments going up. Right. Which And there are a lot of them. I mean, the, the Baltimore's had a lot of federal money poured into it in the last few years, so the whole waterfront side of the city, which is very near to where we live, has got is almost now uniformly new buildings, but amongst them you can find uh, ruins of old wharves and so on. So that, that has a kind of glamour. It has a sort of pathos as well, but it's, uh, it has a kind of glamour about it. It feels a bit like South East London might have done, you know, along all of those yes, developments. Yes, I think of... that's 
about 20 years ago. I think that's right, yeah. Or what Hull might feel like if it had more money. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Tell us about the poem you're going to read for us, uh, Andrew. It's called Evening Traffic. Well, I'm not sure that I understand everything about this poem. It was one of those poems that sort of snuck up on me, rather. There, There are clearly sort of little narrative elements in it that... I can say, well, I saw that boat in the harbour and I saw this and I I did see the man go into the shop selling beds and so on and so forth. But the mood of it is something that that I'm not, not, that as I say, did rather creep up on me. I mean, in fact, in that respect, it pretty well illustrates something that I feel about the writing of poems general, which actually takes us back to what we were saying a moment ago about them being the ones that work better than the ones that don't work, being the result of some sort of quite difficult to manage negotiation between the side of your mind which does know what's going on and mm. is looking after form and and organizing things and is sort of got the lights on and is trying to be intelligent and a side of your mind which is really like the primeval swamp and hasn't got a clue what's happening well we're, we're, um, we're very pleased to 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 publish it uh and you know i've talked to a couple of well, people thank you. Uh, to, to people about it, and there's a sense that it it probably does show a bit of a release for you from from the the, tension, the tensions of your previous role and a, a sort of return of Good. a bit of freedom yeah, I feel that. I mean, I feel tremendously much lighter in myself. I love being here. Um, I love my job. I'm very interested in my students. I have great colleagues. Baltimore, for all its tensions, is one of those places that if you decide to be loyal to it, and I decided on day one that I was going to be loyal to it, is a very, very interesting place to live. Um, well, and just well, the largeness of America is so th- thrilling. Well, it's, it's, it's lovely uh, to hear that, Andrew. That, so here it is to play us out. Andrew Motion will be reading his poem, Evening Traffic. Um, uh, from Thea and me, until next week, goodbye. Here is Andrew Motion. <laughs> so here's this poem, Evening Traffic. He stopped dead in heavy evening traffic, leaving his truck unlocked at the roadside and weaving his way between raindrops into the cavernous bed store adjacent. I thought before the lights changed, He looked in that brightness like a man from ancient history frozen in a glacier. But then I only glanced up for a moment. In truth, he was trying out a new mattress, seizing the chance to stretch flat on his back with both hands clasped behind his head and drumming his heels, if I'm not mistaken. I continued to the end of South Anne, then pulled over by the harbour wall near the building site of the new hotel. A U.S. Navy destroyer had tied up there, a sleek beast with both its gun turrets shrouded in sheets of grey Macintosh. There was no sign of any crew on deck, but I swear I smelled cigarette smoke, just a delicate thread or two lingering. I suppose they must have passed my way, passed through the girls waiting, I mean, and been invited by them, and continued. I lay down on my own bed to sleep, But ever since the autumn cold arrived and those hefty leaves fell from the vine that sprawls in summer along my fence, an extremely bright light that shines all night above the parking lot opposite and the empty cars glittering like waves also sends its blaze across my ceiling. Never mind. When I put on my eye shade as if I'm settling down for a night flight, in fact I drop down fast beneath the sea and stay there among the darkling rocks. When I look up, schools of fish in one mind when they change direction, and sunlight in a dimpled ring, as if hands were washing there or reaching through. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.